You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 77. Today's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 35 through 39. The Lord said to the Jews who believed in him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Today I'd like to discuss two related topics, uh, the, the, the two natures of Christ, the dual nature, uh, the human and divine, and, and the Holy Trinity. And I'm headed in this direction today because of the verse from John that I just read, verse 38, uh, that I'll read again now. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Father, how can we uh, comprehend this, or maybe a better word might be apprehend, uh, not only the two natures of Christ, but the Trinity as well? Good questions, Jason, and I think this sort of highlights why I have focused not so much on theology per se, but on understanding the scriptural teaching in a very practical, meaningful way, one that impacts how we live our lives. And why do you divide those up, Father? Um, Couldn't we make the argument that theology uh, is practical and meaningful also? You know, we certainly could make that argument. Of course, my intention is not necessarily to pit theology and the Bible and the biblical teaching about how to live against one another. But what I see in practice is that most people who become attracted to theology become attracted to this world of ideas. They become attracted to the notion of the importance of Scripture and Christianity as being a way one thinks in their heads, which is then expressed in making or saying a correct statement of faith or a correct formula. Okay, so what do you think then would be a better approach to theology in the Bible? Well, my emphasis is on the right way of life. How do we actually live our lives? Just sticking within my own church so that I don't pick on any others. I'll just say that I've known many Orthodox who can recite the Creed, who can explain the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation, all of those things. But then they look down upon those who the Lord speaks about in Matthew 25, that famous passage about the sheep and the goats. They look down on those who are poor and needy. They don't minister to them, sit at table with them, make friends with them. Sometimes they are made, whether explicitly or implicitly, to feel unwelcome in some of our churches, and that's very problematic. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. But uh, isn't there also the sense that if you have the correct theology, the correct ideas, that you are then more likely to lead a right way of life? Well, you would think so, but we humans are complex. Often what we confess with our mouths, what we say, even what we think or think that we think, you know, what we believe in our heads is not how we actually behave. So just let me give you some examples, some reasons why I continue to stress these points. 
Okay, the first one is that the doctrine of the Trinity came to be finalized, more or less, at the Second Ecumenical Council. began at the First Ecumenical Council, but really was not more set in stone until the Second Council. So we're talking almost a full 300 years after the canon of Scripture was closed that you have the finalization of, so to speak, the doctrine of the Trinity. And another at least 100 years before you have the full doctrine of the Incarnation being more or less settled. And between the end of Scripture and the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation, you had a lot of people arguing about the nature of Christ, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and on and on. So what about the Christians who lived during those 400 years? How would they know how to live if it's theology that is the primary concern? So again, not trying to belittle theology per se, but I'm stating that the Scripture is supposed to inform and judge our theology, and that before you have these theological developments and finalizations, people had to live their lives. And as you alluded to in your original question, it's difficult for us to comprehend or apprehend some of these deep theological statements. So what happens if someone is not theologically inclined or not intellectual enough to understand these dogmatic teachings? Well, the answer is that those people and the people who lived for 400 years before the doctrine of the Incarnation was set in stone in our church, they were guided on how to live by Holy Scripture. And Scripture is still the canon, which means measuring stick. It's the measuring stick by which our lives should be guided. And so it's very important to me that we continue to teach that in our tradition and in our churches. And then just real quickly here, one more thing I want to point out. I was so moved recently by a Protestant that I met and the person really didn't know much until recently about our own church, let alone our theology. This person has been doing incredible prison ministry work for decades now, not as a full-time job, but as a volunteer. And I asked him, you know, what, how did you get involved in, in prison ministry? And he said, well, I read in the Bible in Matthew 25 that those who visit people in prison visit Jesus So I decided I should start doing that. And it's truly amazing to me. Someone very successful, professionally, read Scripture and said, you know what, I need to be doing this. I need to be visiting inmates. Just remarkable. And I'm not aware of anyone who was inspired by a theological statement or a doctrine, whether it be the Trinity or the Incarnation, who changed their lives in that sort of manner. Making a statement doesn't necessarily do that, but reading Scripture does. So again, in my experience, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, maybe others have different experiences, but in my own experience, the focus of making theology the be-all, end-all leads at best to the notion that true faith is believing something in your head or making a statement of faith, or at worst, leads to that most severe biblical sin of self-righteousness that Jesus so regularly and strongly condemns. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that perspective, Father. So uh, if if I could ask a similar question to my original in a a little different manner. Jesus mentions in, again, verse 38 about coming down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. How do you uh, best understand and explain that passage? Well, to speak about this in terms of theology, just kind of going back, you know, it was your original question. Let me first say this. To me, anyway, the most impressive and practical concept of the Trinity is what St. Gregory of Nyssa mentioned about the will of the Trinity. And he explained that although the persons of the Trinity were three, they could properly be called one because they always, at all times, had one will. 
And if you look at us, you and me, Jason, we share the same nature, of course. We're human beings, but we're never truly one because virtually at all times we have a different will. We have a different way that we're thinking in our minds. Our thoughts, our intentions, they're going in different directions. Whereas within the Godhead, St. Gregory says there is only one will at all times. So in terms of what I said earlier about the practical side of things, what I want to highlight is Jesus' statement about the will how he came to do the will of the Father. And that's what is so instructive for us on a practical level. One of the main themes throughout the Bible is that we should submit to the will of God. And Jesus is the only perfect example of this. He entirely submitted and subjugated his will to align with God's will, even to the point of that humiliating death on the cross. And so whether we can grasp or comprehend St. Gregory of Nyssa's teaching and other teachings of the Church Fathers on the idea of the Trinity and how three can be one and yet still be three. We can all, I think, understand the practical teaching of Scripture that we are to be subservient to God, not in the manner of saying the right words, but in the manner of doing what God wants us to do, living the way that God wants us to live. And again, between the writing of John's Gospel from which you read Earlier, the Council of Chalcedon, the Fourth Council, you have hundreds of years where Christians understood the need to subjugate their will to the will of God because of Jesus' words that were recorded for us in John's Gospel, and not because of what Chalcedon confirmed about that. Very good. Thank you, Father. On a different subject, how should we think about what Jesus says at the opening of today's passage where he says, I am the bread of life. A good question. So in scripture, there's a play on the word bread. Bread is used regularly to speak of the biblical teaching, the teaching of God. You have it all over. I'll just give a couple of examples. You have this idea of bread early on in the story of Israel. They're wandering through the wilderness, and they're sustained not just by the manna, the bread sent from heaven, the physical bread, but on following the teaching of God. And so then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, you have the saying that Jesus quotes when he was tempted by the devil. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you see that connection, the physical bread and then this metaphorical bread, the teaching of God. And Jesus in Matthew 16 tells the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then his disciples, they confuse Jesus' statement, think that he's speaking about physical bread. But Jesus explained it to them, what he was talking about, and they finally comprehended. Jesus was speaking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They should be aware of the teaching. So I share this to establish that bread and teaching are intertwined in Scripture, as also we see in the Divine Liturgy. And so Jesus' statement that he is the bread of life indicates that his teaching brings to us eternal life if, it's of course a big if, we actually follow that teaching, if we live out that teaching. And that's why Jesus goes on in the passage here in John's Gospel to mention that he, that Jesus, does the will of the Father. And by implication, then, that means we are to emulate Jesus, and in doing so, then, of course, we also do the will of the Father. And then today's passage concluded with Jesus talking about raising us up on the last day. That's why it's the bread of life, because doing that teaching, putting it into practice, leads us to the resurrection of life that Jesus mentions also in John's Gospel, rather than, as he says, to the resurrection of condemnation. 
And so to conclude, as I noted, you see this connection between the bread, physical bread, and the teaching in the divine liturgy, because at the divine liturgy, you always, always, always have the scriptural teaching first, then you receive the bread of the Eucharist. So the two are intertwined, and that's why you have the reading of scriptural passages assigned for the day, and then you have what we call the anaphora, which gives us a general overview of the entire scriptural teaching, which includes remembering the second coming, by the way, something that hasn't happened yet in the physical world, but is already told to us in scripture, which is why we can commemorate it, why we can remember it, and then after that scripture, uh, scripture reading and that overview of the Bible that we find in the anaphora, we then come forward to receive the physical bread, the bread in the Eucharist. So you can see how these, the bread and the teaching, are intertwined. Thank you, Father. Today's conversation began with questions regarding the Trinity and other theological questions. And as Father Aaron went on to explain, it's important that we guard against placing too much emphasis on these intellectual concepts at the expense of neglecting the teaching of Scripture. If our primary focus is on theology and our faith is merely something that we believe in our head, we will likely live our lives in stark contrast to the teachings of Scripture. And as to the question of the will and the Trinity from verse 38 of today's reading, Father noted St. Gregory of Nyssa, who explained that while the persons of the Trinity were three, they always had only one will. Thus, Jesus' statement about the will teaches us about the importance of submitting ourselves to the will of God. And if we keep this as our primary focus, we won't concern ourselves so much with the ability to verbalize complex theological concepts. Instead, we will devote ourselves to submitting to the will of God. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God. O our God and our hope, glory to thee.